I'm Allison Pease, Associate Provost for Institutional Effectiveness at John Jay College. I'm back for the third and final Distinguished Teaching Prize interview of 2021. In this interview, I talk with Crystal Lee Ensley, Associate Professor of Africana Studies and only the second person at John Jay to have won the award twice. Professor Ensley joined the college in 2013 and first won the Distinguished Teaching Prize in 2016. I begin the interview asking what it means to have won the award twice. A little surprised, a little shocked. Um, I think that I think that more than more than the the repetition of it is the year that everyone has gone through. And when I think about the generosity of our students <laughs> mm-hmm. that during such a difficult challenging you know mess of a year um they would still take the time to write a, a nomination for me when everyone is just struggling and stretched so thin you know mm-hmm. i think that's the um that's what has really stuck out to me so much um because the, the you know it's a different crop of students, it's different classes, um, a different time in all of our lives, and so um, that that feels like such an you know such an honor you know. Yeah, along those lines, you know, winners of the Distinguished Teaching Prize are barred from winning um, for five years after they won the award. It has been just five years for you. <gasps> Um, to be honest, I think those who've won the Distinguished Teaching Prize before are scrutinized more heavily. Mm. The question the TLC Advisory Board members asked is, you know, how has she grown as a teacher since she originally won the prize? Mm. Is this the same application or is it new? Does it show evolution? The answer was that you have demonstrated continued innovation. Your teaching has evolved and everything about your teaching is the watchword for the advisory board, distinguished. Um, One of the things that sticks out to me is your commitment to experiential learning, learning through doing. Mm. You say that your courses explore, quote, how cultural production can work to disrupt oppression. Mm. How do you see that working in your classes? Um, I think... I think the first thing is training our students to really understand that what culture, what culture is and cultural production. Um, And because I think that sometimes because it's culture and we are, it's so everyday and it's so, it seems so accessible that it doesn't warrant our attention or recognition or um, research or focus, you know, Um, and, and culture, it's all of those things that help us cope with the world, right? Um, And with events. So it's, of course, it's the typical things, you know, the art and the religion um, uh, and those types of practices, Um, but it's also um, the sports we play. It's what we believe in, you know, as a group, a group of people. It's what we, um, actions we take, um, the the values that we have um, and all of those sorts of things combined. And so, to, to help our students really understand that they produce culture. It's just like how, you know, when we say that we're critical, uh, we, we, you know, believe in critical um, teaching and learning, it's it's positioning them as knowledge 
producers, right? They they are just, they are co-constructing um, new knowledge with us in a classroom. And so in the same way, they co-construct um, culture. They produce culture just like they produce knowledge. And so helping them understand um, the richness that's really embedded in some of those things that we sort of, they seem small, they seem everyday, and we kind of take them for granted. Um, and then realizing how much of these really large scale sort of social changes are rooted in everyday productions of culture. Um, and in that, I think that sort of moment of, oh, I did, oh, okay. Oh, this is where that comes from. Okay. Um, so it's almost like tr historically tracing and then finding things in the everyday um, that that can contribute to, you know, of course we're geared towards social justice, but but disrupting oppression, just just stopping it or interrupting it or making it, harder to for oppression to occur you know um and one of the ways we do that i i believe is through um cultivating moments of of joy of um peace and of um uh like enjoyment together you know um mm -hmm. because it's 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 uh it requires us to remember like it's the, the world is always both and it's it is really hard it is there are systems of oppression there are people who abuse power um but we also find moments of pleasure um and a lot of times that pleasure is wrapped up in learning you know <laughs> and creating yes um, exactly <laughs> you use critical hip-hop pedagogy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that is and how you've found it effective in your classes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's it's a little bit more than um, like hip-hop-based education, which looks at the elements of hip-hop. Um, but it's not just, it's not just um, like wrapping the social studies lesson. You know, it's, it's Hamilton, but it's so much more than Hamilton. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so... Um, Looking at, at critical hip hop pedagogy, um, it's always about, you know, we have the elements of hip hop. So we're looking at the body. We're looking at dance. Right. We're looking at um, visual art. We're looking at graffiti. Um, there's, of course, the MC who it literally means to, to move the crowd. Right. So to um, if you're you are um, the MC for the night, if you're rapping, if you've got the microphone, you are responsible for moving the crowd that's listening to you. Um, and then, of course, there's the DJ. And so the DJ. DJ is, um, you know, he, the DJ really, in, if we look at hip hop history, the DJ is where it all began, you know, and so, but the DJ, think about the DJ at a party, like you control the rhythm, you control how fast or how slow you control the tone, um, you really set the stage for, for a party or a social gathering. And so when I think about um, critical hip hop pedagogy, it's engaging with social issues from these various approaches um, because the, the other sort of un, lesser known element of, of um, hip hop is knowledge of self. And so um, I really believe that knowing, knowing ourselves helps us to know others and it helps us to know how we can create social change because hip hop is always about innovation. So it's not, it's not that everyone who uses, you know, critical hip hop pedagogy is an, a hip hop artist or a, a b-boy or a b-girl, but it's saying, I understand this history and, and the core principles there of um, creating and innovating and addressing social issues, um, always looking for a remix, always trying to improve, and it always occurs through collaboration. So there's always a, a matter of working together um, 
exchanging ideas, building and growing that really um, that's really required with critical hip hop pedagogy in a way that sets the relationship between a student and a teacher um, automatically in in much more of a dialogue or an exchange. Um, so co- being a co-collaborator um, rather than, you know, just receiving the top down information that's being dispensed you know, from a, from a teacher. Um, and so I think at a really, at a really basic level or like in any sort of class, thinking about the structure, um, it, 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 that's the critical part of it, right? Because it dis it disrupts, it interrupts like uh, typical power dynamics that are occurring, um, in, in traditional classroom settings, like what we think about and what we, uh, when we think about a, a classroom. You took a TLC seminar in problem or project-based learning, and you've applied PBL, as we call it, in your courses. I'm really excited about project-based learning. Mm-hmm. I think it underscores what each of this year's Distinguished Teaching Prize winners have in common, which is mm-hmm. their belief that students learn by doing. For our listeners, can you describe your assignment on blackout data poems and how you set it up and, and how it came out? Yes. So um, I was really excited to uh, work on this um, project. And, I, you know, I really have to shout out the, the TLC um, and all of the, the kind of the variety that they offered um, in opportunities just for kind of experimentation. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think that there's we we lose that sometimes um, in pressure to always always get things right. Um, we, we lose the. Um, that time and space that that you need to kind of experiment or test test things out. So um, this project-based learning um, assignment um, is it's for a 200 level class um, for poetic justice. And so I was able to um, invite uh, a guest artist, Dr. Tony Keith to come to class. And so he came up with this research method for his dissertation. Um, and so, but before we, we even got to this creative research method, we really began with um, some very familiar, very traditional types of assignments when you're looking to do any sort of research project. So there was, you know, find a research question. What's an annotated bibliography? Like we really, un- we like met with the library. Um, you know, they'll do those kind of introductory workshops around an annotated bibliography. Also the writing center, um, they, um, Roxanne, I forget her last name, but she's wonderful there um, and her workshop on an annotated bibliography. And so the students aren't plunged entirely into this brand new research method, but we say, hey, Here's something, here's a way you're used to thinking about asking questions for research. Um, so from there, I said, okay, we've got to come up with um, a question that involves your community or a community of color. So if you live in the Bronx and you want to research something that affects people who live in the Bronx, great. If you are interested in Puerto Rico and you want to investigate something that's a social issue that's impacting folks in Puerto Rico, that's great. Um, but we had they they had to root their question and their focus around a community of color. So either their home community or a, a place um, or a, a location that they were really connected to in some way. Um, so that there was a little bit at least of of personal investment there. Um, and then from that research question, we built um, interviews. And so um, again, pretty 
traditional, like they, they, it wasn't a brand, a brand new method they were learning, um, conducting interviews. Um, but the types of questions they were asking, depending on what their social issue was, got really personal for students there, right? Because especially if they were thinking about their own communities or the types of families they grew up in or an issue, um, you know, sometimes they wanted to look at, um, you know, um, Latinx students um, that were first generation college students in their experience. Um, some of them wanted to look at like very explicitly uh, environmental justice concerns, um, you know, so pollution um, or access to clean water in certain communities. It, it really varied. Um, so the interviews, they conducted traditional interviews. Um, and then based on Dr. Keith's in-class workshop, um, after they took their interview transcripts um, and he walked them through how he collected data um, based on interview transcripts. And so I don't know if you've seen um, like regular blackout poetry. There are examples and it looks like someone just takes like a black highlighter and, and marks out certain words and phrases so that a certain, like a poem is left. So it's really, um, I think it was Audre Lorde that said, poetry distills our experience. And it's a, really a distillation of their language um, and the, the core um, keys and ideas. The difference for Dr. Keith's method is that we are taking these interviews um, about this research question. So you've got some scholarship, you know, shaping your approach. You've got lived experience from people that you've spoken with shaping your insight. Um, and so we take that transcription and the students themselves um, have to black out that interview transcript until only that core poem, the core poetry um, mm. and findings are left. So they're creating a poem, a blackout poem out of an interview transcript about their research. And so it really foregrounds the power and the ethics of research. So whose stories get told, by whom and why? And how do we then amplify that? Because it also sort of calls into question, we're not just creating these really cool visual blackout poems from these interviews, you know, for our presentations, for our findings, but then they're asked to perform those poems. So you interviewed this person you, with all of that emotion and their experience, then you have to take that lived experience, really distill it down to the core function and then share that as poetry in public. And so there's a lot of talk about how does this make the academy more accessible? How does it make scholarship accessible to the communities that are researched, right? And then what does it mean for you if you're a member of a community that you're researching, right? So you're both a subject and a researcher. How, how does that power feel different? You know, how do you deflect it? How do you reflect it back to the folks that you're researching? And then how do you present your research in a way that is traditional and scholarly? Because there's a place there's a place for theorization. There's a place for the intellectual, the, the high language. There's a place for that. And we have to learn how to do that. How do we also take the same thing and make it accessible and meaningful for the communities that we extracted this data from? So it opens up so many, I mean, it really makes you vulnerable, right? Like, 
It's so you really, yeah, you have to examine yourself. You have to be so self-reflexive in this, in this experience. Um, so it's long and it's a detailed project. It's a, it's a lot of work, right? But um, there are many steps, but it is, it is so rich um, and really impactful, yeah, it seems that it, it, you would need so many skills and rehearse, practice so many skills as you create it. Because even if you're only doing like the traditional, because they still, I think a lot of times our students don't, it's like they don't view themselves as producers of culture in a valuable way. You know what I mean? And, and I think mm-hmm. in the same way, they don't see themselves as researchers. They see themselves as completing an assignment until right. they understand like, oh, I'm implicated in this outcome like I am responsible as a researcher for who has access to this information and what the information does out in the world Mm -hmm. later on you know and I think again that's like the hip-hop element that's the critical hip-hop pedagogy is because it's this you're not it's not like you're dumbing down the information it's the same information you are remixing it into mm-hmm. something totally different for a totally different audience. And it's like, it's, it's beautiful, you know, <laughs> or it can be right. Right. Is there anything you've discovered about teaching and learning this year during the pandemic that you'll carry forward with you? Ooh, I feel as if, <laughs> <laughs> we have all discovered so much uh, about ourselves. Um, I just think that the the humanity that is required in this profession cannot be overstated. Um, I when when our students feel recognized as whole human beings. Um, beyond their grade, beyond their success in the class, when when they understand us as whole human beings, <laughs> you know, that are impacted by the same things, um, and it it I just I don't think that that type of connection can be overstated either, um, and the necessity of creative work in moments of crisis usually it's the first thing that goes is the first thing that gets you know cut because oh just do the main project or just do the main assignment or you know um just just get it done so like we can get a grade in um and I think that that has had to shift for all of us this year um because we were all impacted in so many different and unpredictable ways uncontrollable ways um and without having those tools, those same cultural tools to cope or to connect with each other, um, we suffer, you know, um, we really suffer. Um, our communication suffers. Um, and it's, I think the type of isolation that that we have experienced in different levels in different ways this past year, um, like we've all had to dig so deep and at the end of the day the same thing that you come up with is just if we're gonna make the make it through make it beyond um we we need each other we need each other desperately desperately um and I think just just a moment of of recognizing humanity in every class I think it it, we cannot shortchange ourselves um, 
of of that of that even if it's just a brief moment just an acknowledgement um of it um and i think also the creativity the the students creativity the drive that they have um and the real commitment you know and the, the kinds of questions they ask, the kinds of questions I'm asking, you know, like what really is the priority? What really matters? Like, what is the point of all of it? Like, what is the point when the world shuts down, when the world is at war? Like, what is the point of everything that we do? Um, and I think asking those kinds of questions and not always having nice, clear answers, um, it keeps, you know, it keeps us coming back. Yeah. <laughs> So you've now been publicly acknowledged as a distinguished teacher twice. Is there something that you still want to get better at as a teacher? Oh, I think always. Um, and if I, if I may be so bold. <laughs> you may. I, <laughs> thank you. I think that's why I've received this honor twice is because I look for, not because I've arrived anywhere, but because I have not stopped engaging with that question. Like where, where else do I need to grow? Where else can I improve? What am I learning? Because as much as I know, if we really buy into this critical pedagogy thing, then I am a student every semester. I'm a student. I'm learning. I am always learning, you know, um, and I'm always co in that, in that relationship of co-construction with our students. And so being in that position, um, that, that humility of, I've got to get better. I'm, I don't know everything, right. I'm an expert facilitator. Um, I know a lot about some of these subjects, but I'm not an expert on anything except being Crystal Lee Inslee, you know, <laughs> Um, but just be that willingness, I think, and the eagerness to where can I, okay, where can I grow next? Okay, I think I've got this. Okay, but this part was kind of weak. Where do I, how can I strengthen that? I think that's the only reason why I, I would be recognized um, twice. And I, and I feel like, of course, technology um, I mean, again, all of those shortcomings I have, and I've taught online before, that's the crazy thing, but just trying to learn different things and uh, make it engaging and make it accessible and find new sources. Um, but I think there's always room, like techno technologically to grow. Um, there's always new scholarship, new, I mean, new texts, new materials and content, you know, that I want to engage with. Um, so I feel like there's, there's always something, um, I think last year highlights the technology, but, um, but there's always, you know. In this, in this world where technology is what enables us to communicate with our students, I've thought about you because um, I know that you're interested in embodied teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. I know that, um, you know, performance mm -hmm. is a part of what you do. How are you getting around the absence of bodies in our learning space? It's, it's challenging, right? But I think the issue, I can't expect the same type of performance to happen because it's, that's, kind of crazy, right? Like we're not, it's not going to be the same. 
and that's got to be okay. But I have my my job is to find out okay, but how are we performing, or how are we engaging? If we're not doing what I'm used to, what I prefer, or how I what I'm the best at, or my strongest, you know, like. I can read a room, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, but like, how do you read your screen? Um, but so that's like, that's the challenge is not looking for exactly the same type of engagement or the ty- same type of feedback. Right. So it's got to come from somewhere else. So where, what is that new thing that I've either got to learn or develop or figure out with our students that's going to provide the connection the performance and the feedback that I'm so used to, um, or that I've, I've come to really rely on, you know? Um, and then what can I, what do I need to be flexible with? Like, um, I'm going to be honest, like the zoom chat, I had to get used to that. Um, I had to get used to, cause I was so distracted at first. Like, uh, you know, it's like people passing notes and cl- like they're talking and, cl- and I'm like, I can't concentrate. And then I realized you're looking at it the wrong way. Like, this is feedback. This is dialogue. This is performance in the chat, you know? Um, and so even something as simple as that, just, I have to reconfigure and it's back to that remix, right? Like, okay, we've got different tools at our disposal now. Um, and I, I'm, I can mourn the what's lost. Right. Um, and there's space for that too. Um, but how can I make something new with what I've got? You know, because that's that's hip hop. That's the that's at the at the root. You know, that's what it is. How can I create something that's going to be pleasurable, enjoyable, accomplish a goal, maybe shift some things, you know, um, but I've got to let go kind of of what I'm and and it's hard because, you're you know, I enjoy that embodied learning, you know, but it just looks different now. So what do I have to do to learn to get fluent? Right. In, in this new language of embodiment. Crystal Lee Ensley, winner of the 2021 Distinguished Teaching Prize and the 2016 Distinguished Teaching Prize. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it so much, Allison. I really do. Thank you.